Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, and Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line from Tokyo, we're joined by Leo Lewis, our Japanese financial correspondent. And our guest clip this week comes from an interview with Koji Nagai, who is the chief executive of Japan Namura. First today, we'll be looking at Barclays Bank as it cuts bonuses for staff. Secondly, a look at that Namura story and the plans that Namura has to slash its representation in London. And finally, Revolut. Is it coming of age? David, first to that Barclays story, which you and our colleague Stephen Morris broke this morning. A big cut to Barclays bankers' bonuses. Yes, so a double-digit cut to the rate of accrual in the first quarter. Now, what does that mean? Well, bonuses are paid annually to investment bankers, but they accrue throughout the year. And Barclays has had a policy since 2016 that has allowed it to instantly pull the lever if revenues fall at its investment banks so that bonuses should fall by roughly the same amount as revenues falling. But that hasn't happened traditionally, and it certainly didn't happen under the previous head of the investment bank, Tim Throsby, who successfully resisted attempts to pull that cost lever. He's gone, ousted recently, and replaced in effect by the group chief executive, Jess Staley. And what we're hearing is the bank is going to be much more disciplined about pulling that lever. And indeed, it has to be because it has Ed Bramson, the activist investor, breathing down its neck calling for it to scale the investment bank down and amid an environment of falling revenues across the industry, the only thing it has left to do is to cut costs. Now, investment bankers' bonuses are pretty anachronistic in the current age, aren't they, given how much profits have fallen in investment banking. To keep those levels of pay so high has obviously been ripe for reform, but a lot of banks have held off from doing that, fearful that they would lose their best staff to rivals. What do you think is going to happen as a result of this? Why is Barclays confident it's not going to lose its best staff? Well, I suppose it depends who you believe. I mean, this is always the argument that has been posited, which is you cut people's pay, then they can go elsewhere. The question, I suppose, one might ask is where are they going to go? There's not a huge amount of joy happening in investment banking in Europe at the moment. Sockgen is cutting jobs. Deutsche is very sick indeed. So where do these people go? And I suppose Barclays is taking the risk that people will stick with it. I suppose what staff might say is, well, Americans are doing pretty well. They might be hiring. And of course, there's sectors outside of banking in the finance industry, hedge fund and private equity sectors, which are still thriving. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can go to private equity, you can go to the shadow banking world, if you like, you can go and work for an American rival. But I think in this instance, Barclays is of the opinion that the more pressing concern 
is the activist investor that is calling for the investment bank to improve its returns or to scale back. And it can't just keep on going quarter to quarter with a stubbornly high cost to income ratio. And pay is the main factor in that high cost to income ratio. Well, who knows, it just might trigger a revolution in investment banker pay. We will keep tabs on that. Thanks, David. Let's move on to our second topic of the day. And I'm delighted to say Leo Lewis is joining us from Tokyo. Namira, the giant Japanese brokerage, has been losing business at home because of a stagnant economy and also on the world stage as the investment banking market goes into retrenchment. Koji Nagai, the chief executive, has spoken to Leo Lewis, the FT's Tokyo correspondent, and Lionel Barber, the FT's editor, who was there on a trip. So, Leo, thanks very much for joining us. Let's first of all hear a couple of the key things that Mr. Nagai had to say to us. And I think the questions in this case were posed by Lionel Barber. The first clip is what he said in response to questions about Brexit. How does it particularly affect Nomura? Huge impact. Tell me. Our latest business plan was formulated based upon various assumptions, including the uncertainty around Brexit. Of course, Brexit is not the single factor, but as Liu-san is well aware, we have placed the global wholesale hub in London, but we will have to make a fundamental change to that structure. We have no choice. Aside from the timing of Brexit and whether it is going to be hard Brexit or soft Brexit, the situations around the wholesale business have remained weak and at the same time it seems possible that it's going to take long for the situation to normalize. So at this point in time we see no reason for us to keep that kind of significant presence over there London. Next, Mr. Nagai talked about the job cuts that would inevitably come. We are directly focused on the headcount reduction, but as a result of our initiatives, it will result in thousands of headcounts to be slashed, though that's not our immediate uh, direct intention. No, of course. But will you relocate some of these? So, um, part of the personnel or roles will be relocated because we have made the assumption that we will not be able to keep using the single passport mm. to gain access to the continental Europe. But our assumption is we won't be able to use that passport any longer. So we have set up a holding company in Europe, specifically in Frankfurt, and we are in the process of moving accounts to that Frankfurt-based entity so that we'll be able to avoid the destructive impact even in the case of hard Brexit. So, Leo, how negative is the vibe at Namura now? This all sounds pretty bleak stuff. It does, and I think deliberately so. Nagai-san is using the word thousands. I think he's using it there in the Japanese sense of a very large number. There are about 2,000 people in London. The cuts will be pretty severe, but the number that we're hearing on background from sources at Nomura, both in London and Tokyo, is around 350 in what will be the first of a number of phases of cuts. So they are getting quite serious about this. 
Nomura is in a lot of trouble, as are a number of its rivals across the industry. But Nomura's big problem relates a lot to the Japanese management system, and Mr. Nagai himself admitted that. And I think that what he's trying to do is to make sure that everyone knows internally at Nomura that this is a crisis, and that if it doesn't act now and slay some sacred cows, that it's really going to be in a kind of permanent spiral downwards. And that's why you get these very big numbers with the suggested cuts of billion dollars of cost savings that he's recently proposed. And that's the theme that he was certainly in this interview, he was really trying to, I think, share the sense that they recognise that they are in quite serious trouble. And of course, the context here is not only the woes, as you said, that plenty of other banks around the world are facing in terms of the investment banking environment, revenues and profits dipping sharply across the board, but also the long-standing problems that Namura has had with that wholesale business, particularly the London operations following the acquisition of the European and Asian operations of Lehman Brothers after its demise in the crisis. But then obviously also the pressures it's facing back home in terms of a pretty stagnant local operation. Yeah, and the the local operation is a victim of demographics. We know that Japan has got this very rapidly ageing society. Statistics that came out pretty much as we were doing that interview were that 20% of the Japanese population is now aged over 70. A third of the population is over 60. And dealing with those numbers as a brokerage like Nomura that's been used to having this number one position of having these medium wealth clients across Japan, the fact is that they are getting older and... The risk that Nomura has is that while it has this position for now, what it has not been brilliant at is attracting the Japanese now in their 20s and 30s and 40s, who will become, in many cases, the inheritors of this very big stock of wealth that Nomura's clients have in Japan. And the concern for Nomura is that it just hasn't been nimble enough and that it hasn't really put enough resources into making sure that it's ready to attract and then retain those younger Japanese as its main body of its clients reaches the age where many of them will be passing away and and then passing wealth down through the family. I've spoken to Mr Nagai on a number of occasions over the last few years. You know, this is the third time since he became CEO that Mr Nagai has announced cost-cutting programmes with about a billion dollars of of cost cuts. And so it really does remain to be seen whether this solves all the problems that Nomura has. It's a fascinating tale, and at least I suppose Mr Nagai is getting to grips with the cost side of things. Uh, remains to be seen whether they can steal back market share from the new generation of upstart financial services companies that are challenging them. Thank you for joining us, Leah. So from Tokyo to London via Moscow, a look at Revolut, Nick. You've been interviewing the chief executive there. He's, a, I should say, a Russian-born entrepreneur who's set up this very interesting fintech company, which has seized a lot of market share among young financial services consumers. Tell us what your impression was. Why do you think this interview was given in the first place? Because it's a company that's rather remained in the shadows, hasn't it, until now? Well, certainly in the last couple of months it has. Revolut, like you said, is one of the biggest fintechs in Europe. It kind of started off focusing on currency exchange services, but it's moving towards becoming a full international bank. But it's had a really rough start to 2019. It had a bit of a misguided ad campaign that landed it in some hot water with authorities at the start of the year. And then there's been lots of questions about how good its compliance services were. 
managed to get into a bit of a fight with politicians in Lithuania, which is where it got its banking license late last year. And then we've also had several articles with former staff accusing it of fostering a toxic, very aggressive culture and making job applicants work for free and various other things. So I think this meeting, me and Tim Bradshaw, one of our colleagues on the tech desk, sat down with Nikolai, who's the chief exec, and several other members of the top team. We were there for nearly three hours. Partly it's them looking for a, I think the phrase they used was a reset button. They're trying to move on, essentially, from this rough start to the year. It was interesting because it's not a total mea culpa. Nikolai acknowledged that they'd had growing pains, but he equally said, we've never done anything wrong, which is an interesting tension. I think basically the elephant in the room among all of this that's been explaining why they've had to do it is they also need to raise money at some point soon. Because this is a business like so many fintechs that is basically burning through startup capital and various rounds of funding that they've had and are not yet profitable. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like several others, they say that they could be profitable if they stopped investing to expand in lots of different countries. But that's very theoretical because they are spending a lot of money. I think just this year, they're looking at the US, Australia, Japan, Canada, uh, maybe a couple of other markets. And this is already the longest they've ever gone without raising new cash from investors. They've got a multi-billion pound valuation at the last count is that right yeah so i think they were about 1.7 billion dollars and that was last year they would very much be hoping to see an increase to that the next time they come to raise cash several of their rivals have caught up with them in the meantime there was a very interesting line in your interview wasn't there where he wouldn't say how much they were trying to raise but made it clear he wanted to raise more than anybody else yeah i mean the chief exec is a very competitive man and that's obviously something that is celebrated and often kind of an essential factor for entrepreneurs but it does mean if you're trying to do all of that what he doesn't want to have is investors getting distracted by stories about culture or stories about stuff that happened two or three years ago in their compliance department. One final thing, I think you started the write-up of your interview with a line about how they're going to have a telephone service. Now, this is something that an online-only institution like Revolut has staunchly avoided up to now. This perhaps a recognition that some of their customer service issues might be more easily resolved if they could talk to people on the phone. Did you get a sense of when they're going to do this? So I think they've already introduced it for certain things. Previously, it was that you could only call up the bank if you were looking to close down your account. But in general, as with many other startups, they take an approach of everything digital, everything app-based is the best way, most efficient way of doing it. But again, as with some of their peers, people at N26 finding this in the last couple of weeks as well, is that when it comes to dealing with people's money, if stuff gets complicated and stuff goes wrong, customers want to have someone to talk to and they get really, really frustrated and it tends to exacerbate issues and then the complaints get louder and they touch social media and then that's where people's reputations start getting damaged. So although we sort of joked about it, a phone line doesn't seem like a particularly innovative new product for them to be coming out with. There's a slight acknowledgement that not everything that traditional banks do is such a bad idea. The real world still matters. Thank you very much for that, Nick. And that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Nick, David Crow before him, and also Leo Lewis talking to us from Japan. And thank you for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.